Hey everyone, Dan Bach here with another special edition podcast for you here on rotogrinders.com. Uh, I'm super excited to see um, another book come out about daily fantasy. A couple of years ago, our friend Dan Barbarisi had one, and uh, we get another one. This one, a little bit different in the sense that this is really kind of an origin story about FanDuel, DraftKings, the rise of DFS, the fall of DFS, the re-rise of DFS. It's a fascinating read. It's called Billion Dollar Fantasy, the high-stakes game between FanDuel and DraftKings that upended sports in America. And happy to have Albert Chen, the author, with us here on the podcast. Albert, welcome. Uh, how long exactly was this book in the making? Because I remember meeting you at a live final for FanDuel in, gosh, it seems like maybe 2015 or so. And you were thinking of doing something back then. And here we are, 2019, and the book is, uh, is finally coming out. Yeah, I mean, you could actually even go earlier than that. Back to December 2014 is really when the seed was kind of planted as just like a story. I mean, so I was working on a story for Sports Illustrated back then. And, you know, obviously 2014 NFL season, live final in Vegas. It's kind of, you know, we're still a year away from the explosion, the massive explosion of ads. And 2014 is when I pitched a story to the editors of Sports Illustrated, um, you know, I am a big fantasy player and had gotten into daily fantasy that fall of 2014 and initially just totally got it. Like I totally understood why this was a thing with massive potential. Uh, wrote the story for Sports Illustrated and kind of like after that, sort of sat on the sidelines and moved on to other projects, other things. And 2015 is when, you know, I mean, I don't have to go into what happened in the industry back then, but it just, everything exploded. So fast forward to fall of 2015, you of all know, of all people and everyone world knows what happened in the fall of 2015. And, uh, uh, book publisher, and we thought, okay, this could be a story here. This could be a book potentially. Uh, and 2016 is really when I started to dive into it. And I've, as you noted, I mean, aware that Dan and he had a great book that came out, and I initially kind of knew that I knew what kind of book I didn't want to write, and I knew that Dan was going to write, and he did write a great book and wanted to do something a little bit different. And as we all know, 2016, 2017, such a fluid, fluid story through the ups and downs of the industry. And anyway, that's a long-winded answer to answer <laughs> your question of, I really dived into this in mid to late 2016. And the, the crazy thing though is, the story in terms of that you, what you wanted to tell just had to change, was changing constantly. It probably even changing up to the moment that you had your deadline for this story because, you know, we'll get into some of the specifics of it, but, you know, the, the ending, I don't want to say it felt incomplete, but, you know, there's still so much more that's left to be told. And, you know, some of the central characters in the book are, are the founders of, 
of FanDuel and uh, and you know their ending of the story. We still aren't really sure how that's going to end up with with kind of a lawsuit. So talk about like when you decided like okay, I got to cut it off here because I imagine like you could have probably waited another six months and a year and had a lot more story to to tell in that book. Yeah, I mean, I think for the sake of my wife's mentality, I had to end the book sooner rather than later because this was really totally just consuming. Uh, you know, when you write a book, it's just absolutely just uh, you know all consuming. And I, you know, I I'm an editor here at Sports Illustrated, and you know that was kind of my day to day job. But at the same time, I'm sort of living this story. And, you know, I, I think the advantage of, of writing on a book, writing a book rather than sort of, you know, covering the, the industry day to day. And, you know, a lot of people do a fabulous job of doing that is that I can just take a few months and just wait to see what happens with the events of, of the story. And, you know, I was describing just this morning of, of like what, what it was like to follow this industry and, follow this story and it, it's kind of like you know sort of like being you know on, on a roller coaster but completely in the dark because you know the twists and turns are coming because they always do in the story but you just don't know when the next huge turn is coming and when the end is coming so that is a another long-winded answer to say that you know there was always kind of a potential finite end whether it was, I mean, honestly, in 2016, look, I mean, you remember, I mean, we wondered whether the end of the, the companies potentially was going to come with, you know, whether it was the investigations or whether it was just simply of these companies going broke in 2016, then 2017, oh, happy ending merger happening between the two companies. Well, that didn't happen also. And so, you know, to me, when the you know, and, and I'm sure we will talk about this a little bit more, but, you know, when PASPA in 2018, the Supreme Court decision, you know, that to me was kind of a natural ending to sort of one massive chapter segment to the story. And, you know, my approach all along was this is a story about the people. This is a story about the people who lived and breathed the industry. And but it is set to this backdrop where this was a massive game changer in May of 2018. And, you know, so that that that's really kind of the the end of of the book and the narrative as I kind of laid it out in the book. Yeah. And, you know, real credit to you to um, to make people in this industry super compelling. I mean, it's one thing for me to read it. I've lived this. I know these people personally, I have them on my cell phone. So like, it's always kind of cool to read about your friends, but I let my wife read the book and that's the true test because she doesn't know the people very well. She might've heard the name. Um, she's a, she's a fiction reader, doesn't read any nonfiction. And she got through this thing in like three days. And it was really interesting to kind of hear her actually talk about these people in FanDuel and DraftKings and really almost, I don't want to say care about them, but she was so intrigued about their personal stories that go along with it. What do you think was like the biggest surprise for you in following along? We'll start with, with FanDuel, with 
you know, Leslie and Nigel, who have such a really important, you know, part of this book, what was the biggest thing that stood out with you in the journey for them over the last, you know, five years, six years, yeah. like eight yeah. years for those guys? Right. Yeah. And that's a great question because like, even when I started the project, I mean, when I kind of went into this industry and, 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 and the story in 2014, you know, I, I met them briefly in, in Las Vegas at the live FanDuel live final in late 2014 and had conversations with them, but kind of, look, I mean, <laughs> two people, husband and wife co-founders, two of five co-founders from Scotland. I mean, there has to be an interesting story there. And I, I kind of knew that from the start, but when I dived into this idea of maybe doing a book for this, I had no idea whether I was going to get access to them or even DraftKings. So, you know, the dream for a writer is that you're going to have interesting characters with the backdrop of a really interesting story. Well, I knew it was an interesting story, you know, just because of the events of everything that happened. And I also knew of the, the kind of book that I didn't want to write because look, Dan, Dan wrote, Dan Barbarisi wrote a phenomenal book about the players, the player perspective. And I don't think there's going to ever be a better book on that topic. So I wasn't even going to approach that. And I, but I also didn't want to do a blow by blow account of what happened because, you know, I don't think that, you know, I, I think like whether it's your wife or like anyone who doesn't know a ton about the day to day events of the industry, I wanted to write something that, you know, someone could just pick up and really kind of care about the story. So the only way to do that would be through the stories of the characters who are at the forefront of this. So the surprising thing to me was from the outset who these people were, because, you know, whether it's Nigel, Leslie, Tom Griffiths, Rob Jones, and Chris Stafford, you know, guys from the UK, uh, who started this thing or the founders of DraftKings who, you know, I mean, you could write an entire book about those founders who are fascinating on an entirely different level was that the backstories of these guys were just absolutely so rich that, you know, it, it's really a challenge in terms of just tackling the many themes and how really fascinating all these characters were. And so, I mean, just from a purely basic level, I was just kind of surprised at how, you know, just interesting all these people were. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think let's talk a little bit about DraftKings here. And I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize was maybe how over their heads DraftKings were when they got started. And I don't say that. You're talking about three guys who had zero experience in terms of, you know, running a business. Yes, Jason, very smart guy, but has never been a CEO and suddenly was thrust into a position of <laughs> having a billion dollar, you know, a, a, a billion dollar business and have hundreds of million dollars in, in advertising to allocate. I mean, that whole thing, like, do you think especially when you consider like how far ahead FanDuel got over DraftKings. I mean, I don't know if anybody would have caught up unless it was Jason Robbins just based on, he just had no fear, didn't he? Like, I think that was his best asset in terms of trying to unseat FanDuel, trying to first unseat Draft Street, 
was basically he didn't care because I don't think he knew what rules there were to break or not to be broken. Does that make a little sense? It makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that you almost, I think you're getting to the heart of really what the DraftKings story is and the secret to kind of their success, which look, the guys at FanDuel had a spreadsheet on, you know, that was shared and it was a, a list of a hundred, uh, you know, daily fantasies, fantasy companies that came and went. And you're, the question essentially is like, how, why DraftKings? Why these three guys from Boston who had no experience in terms of like starting a company, why Jason Robbins? And that was, these were all questions that I had going into this because, you know, I know that, you know, two th- I mean, you could go several years before, but you, DraftKings comes in very late into this story of yeah. daily fantasy. I mean, that is... That's the thing is like, you know, people ask me like, well, so why is DraftKings sort of, you know, when you talk about the narrative arc of this industry, why, you know, in terms of percentage of like pages that are devoted to them? Well, I'm like, well, look, they came in pretty late into this game. And again, credit to their founders for having this certitude and really, and look, Jason and, and, you know, Matt Lieberman, Paul Lieberman and Matt Kalish have you know, they would be the first ones to their credit to admit that, look, they didn't know exactly what they were getting into. They were in over their heads, but that's the nature of startup life. That's the nature of being a entrepreneur is you have almost this delusion that you can come in and totally win this market up and an industry. And that's what they did. And, you know, it's, it's 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 funny because I had a conversation with um, with Matt pretty late in the game, and he was like, "Look, we we had no doubt at the very beginning that we were going to do this, that we were going to catch up to Fanduel." Because, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, part of it was having these investors behind us, but it was also kind of this delusion and this certitude that, like. We knew what we were doing. And look, in retrospect, you know, as, as guys now who know how things work, yeah, it was completely crazy and insane, but that's kind of what you need to have when you start a business. And they rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. They had a mentality that was a little, sure, from the outsider perspective, insane. But these were guys who were perfectly suited in some ways. And yes, as you pointed out, in over their heads in a completely different way as the FanDuel founders were. But they were, look, credit to them, because here we are now in 2019, and it's still a war, it's still a battle, but the, all three founders are still there, and, and uh, you know, it's kind of um, still an open question of what things are going to look like five, ten years from now. Yeah. And, and I didn't mean that in a negative way. And I hope if they listen to this, they don't take it as that. I just don't think that, that, uh, you know, many other people would have been able to overcome the difference. Cause I mean, here's the thing to remember. And, you know, I've been in this for a long time. A lot of people who are into DFS now don't ever realize this, but I mean, FanDuel had like literally 80% of the market at a point in time. I mean, they had, everything in their favor and it was almost kind of got to a situation there for a while 
where you know it just it almost felt like okay this is this is fan duels to win and then you basically have these guys come in and and break all the rules and do all the things they weren't supposed to do oh should we offer these games that you know may or may not fall under uigea uh, it's we'll do it and we'll ask questions later and i felt like that was a mentality that FanDuel certainly didn't have and it kind of it showed through and allowed DraftKings to catch up in a lot of areas where FanDuel was worried on one thing and one thing only. And that of course was, you know, spending money for football. And I think DraftKings yeah. said, you know what? We're going to go beyond football. And that really got their name out there. And the, the one thing I found interesting was that in the book, you, there's a point where Jason says, yeah, I don't really regret anything. Like, I don't think I would have done anything different. And then there's a point in the book where you ask Nigel that question. It was a different answer. Do you remember the, I'm sure you do, you wrote it, but what did he say that he would do differently that he thinks could have been uh, changed the tide? Because when this took place, I was shocked it was DraftKings who did the deal, not FanDuel. Yeah, no, I mean, it's the draft street. Acquisition. <laughs> right acquisition i mean and you know part of this was to really kind of uh do the whole story and like a, a big part of the book is is the draft street or you know origin story as well yeah. and and his biggest regret i mean there's no question about it I, I don't think there is look i mean it's it's funny because you know you talk about certitude and like i mean nigel and the co-founders i mean they they to this day and there's a disagreement between them and 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 the board now and we can kind of get into that whole sort of thing but like they don't have any regrets about the advertising campaign and that what you know how they went tit for tat with DraftKings. but you know nigel's biggest regret is you know not making that move early on to acquire you know making it striking a deal with brian schwartz ceo at draft street and and you know this move very early on in the chess match where they allowed you know DraftKings to just kind of make inroads with that deal and you know it was a shock i think to everybody mm -hmm. to brian to nigel to jason even like you know what the impact of that deal at that very moment, you know, almost like instantaneously, they just got a ton of users that I don't think anyone particularly really like anticipated at that point in time. So that was the actual, the actual game changer. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, you know, just the other day, you know, I keep having conversations and like someone at, at FanDuel equated the lead that they had after the 2014 NFL season too, you know, it's, it's, it's the Falcons over the, the Patriots 28 yeah. to three and, and they squandered it. And, you know, I mean, there's a, like a, probably a great dissection of like how that happened and, you know, why that happened. But, you know, and, and even when I sort of enter this, you know, this industry, I mean, it wasn't even a question of like, who's going to win this market. It was a question of like, is FanDuel, you know, and we're talking 2000, late 2014 going into 15, it's like, okay, how big is this? Like, clearly FanDuel is going to, FanDuel is the leader here. DraftKings is kind of like this, you know, offshoot startup in, in, in Boston. And, I, you know, not really on people's radar in terms of like the general mainstream. And then six months, 
later, 2015, going into 2015 NFL season, I mean, you know, DraftKings has caught up. And, and again, like, it's a credit to the approach. Like, if you want to go from a standpoint of just, like, purely, wow, these guys did it. Jason and, you know, his team, they caught up to him. And it's, it's, it's just kind of a... It's it's crazy, but it's it's also an achievement for sure. But but it, it and the the irony of it is, what it took to catch up to them, also nearly ended them, in, in the same yeah, regard. Absolutely. I mean, and and that's the 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 irony of the whole thing was, somebody had to do something that was totally outrageous, and that's spending hundreds of millions of dollars advertising. And I don't say being reckless in doing so, but I think being pretty reckless in doing so. And, uh, and that's what it was going to take. But on the flip side, it was like, you know, burn the whole house down potentially. And it nearly took place. And that's nearly what happened. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I mean, I think that if you're kind of looking at it from the standpoint of like, and the outsider perspective, the Fandle perspective and, really anyone outside of DraftKings, you're just like, this is absolutely insane. I mean, like, you know, the mentality of raising that much money and burning through it for what at the end of the day outside of the DFS world is an unproven and like, what is this at the end of the day is, is totally crazy. But if you're in Jason Robbins's shoes, if you're in the shoes of, the co-founders, if you're in the shoes of the investors, you are absolutely all in and there is no other option. And, you know, the thing I, I'll go back to, you know, when I talk to Brian Schwartz, you know, from Draft Street or any of the co-founders and even any of the co-founders of, of FanDuel, maybe with, with the exception of Leslie, is... If you were in Jason's shoes, like, would you have done the same thing? And it's just like, it's kind of unanimously, absolutely. Because like, you could have been any of the, you know, any of the companies on that spreadsheet that just started and completely failed here today, gone tomorrow. And that's what it would have been. And you can make the argument that unless you have the mentality, precisely the mentality that they had, where we are absolutely all in. We know we can raise more money than the other guy because we have a great story to tell. They were not, it was all or nothing. And they went all in. And look, it's, it's was, not, yeah. Yeah, what, what, was, what was it about Jason that made all these investors just give him hundreds of millions of dollars? I mean, that's something that I've always wanted to know because uh, it's not easy. I've, I've talked to a lot of people who have tried to start business, especially fantasy businesses, and it's hard to have somebody write you a check. This guy had people write him check after check after check. What was it about those presentations and that deck that sold, sold them to you know, cut him hundreds of millions of dollars? There had to be something about Jason that would allow him to convince people that his vision was going to work because I know a lot of people tried and weren't getting that kind of money. How did he do it? And especially like even draft street, for example, yeah, they had some IAC money behind them at some point, but they didn't really 
care that much about the product, but Jason just, it, it was, it was, that's what I found to be so unbelievable was the magnitude of the amount of money he was able to get. Well, I, I think some people would call it sort of, you know, delusion and just kind of like an ability to just like go into a room and just sell a story and like this vision, right? As you put it, I mean, and look, I mean, the vision was realized. I mean, here we are in 2019 and this has all come to fruition. And, you know, you could kind of like backtrack and say at what points, you know, could this have story just completely gone awry? But at the same time, if you're starting a company and if you are going into a room of investors who are looking at the total upside of this, it really is about presenting a story and a vision that is, you know, maybe far beyond the reality of where, you know, look, I mean, Nigel and the co-founders, you know, I, you know, they, they come from a sensibility that is like all about, you know, numbers and analytics and like what makes sense from a purely business level. And I think that is very attractive to a lot of investors. And there is almost kind of like a, you know, I, I think like, I totally get it. Like, I, you know, I, I think like if you spend any time with these guys who started this company, you know, just kind of like from really improbable circumstances, you're like, these guys are really smart guys who know what they're talking about. But when you go into this mentality of, and it's not only a factor of DraftKings and Jason Robbins, it's this larger idea of selling the story uh, it's a Silicon Valley kind of like startup mentality where VC money is just gushing in. You know, you can call it fake until you make it where you're telling a story and, you know, it's going to take some time for the reality to catch up to the, you know, to what you're, you're, you're selling. But, you know, you are selling in a, a story and an upside that is, is possible because like it is possible in a certain reality where only a few and certain people can kind of understand where the pieces can all fit. So, you know, look, I mean, Jason, you know, he, he harkens back to his favorite movie, Back to the Future, where, look, at any number of points, like things could have gone horribly wrong and the time continuum could have not added up. And they added up and, you know, yeah. like in the startup world where you you're playing with hundreds of millions of dollars, if they add up, man, they add up big time. And the, the, the crazy thing about it is too, this was so pre PASPA being shot down. If it was, I mean, and, and to the point of like, there was really no expectation of it changing in the short term. I mean, I could have seen it because I mean, am I wrong? They didn't, they weren't selling themselves as the future leader in sports betting were they i mean was that the pitch and i'm not talking about daily fantasy as sports betting i'm talking like we're booking games like was that part of their pitch i did not grasp that it was in those early meetings because it was that felt like so far off in the distance it was so far off in the distance and i think that like Look, I mean, if uh, absolutely, if you're talking about a world specifically that, you know, gambling is legalized, and we're not even in that world right now in 2019, we're far, we're kind of far from it, but it is a world that is kind of inevitable. 
And if you are able to sort of pitch that world that is inevitable, I think if you're a smart investor, you can kind of see how things are trending and you can kind of connect the dots. So, you know, if you go into a room and you don't have to say, okay, like within five, 10 years, you know, PASPA is going to be repealed and, you know, gambling is going to be legalized in so-and-so states, but you can, you can paint a picture where, you know, and, and I think like Jason, and this is where, this is where there is absolutely an advantage to being a guy who played in 200 fantasy leagues and, you know, was reciting box scores and statistics, you know, at the kitchen table when he was young. And this is where the advantage plays in where you get it. You get where the passion of the the guy who is consuming sports on a day-to-day basis and you get where just how, yeah, you know, just like how this passion just overtakes everything and where, you know, it's, it's, it's not even about numbers. It's not even about kind of laws that are passed, but there is this possibility where if you tap into that and you tap into technology, well, you really have something going on. And I do think that the DraftKings founders had an advantage in that respect, no question to the guys from the UK where they could tap into that passion as a sports fan. And, you know, Dan, like you can speak to it and I can speak to it. Like if you are a sports fan who, and a fantasy player, you, you know, you just understand it. You get it where you're like, this is far beyond numbers. This is far beyond states that where this is legalized. This is about something that is a part of, you know, our lives on a day to day basis. And if you can tap into that, well, man, this is a really big thing. And, yeah, and Jason, I, Jason has an ability to, to tap into that. There's no question about it. And you nailed it. I mean, and as somebody who was around back then, I mean, it was clear DraftKings was building a product that was run by people who like, who know fantasy sports, who play fantasy sports. You always had this feeling that FanDuel just neglected a lot of the product features there might have been some tech reasons for it, but there was also features they didn't have that you you could sit back and be like, wow, that's really strange. Like, why would they not do As somebody who plays, like, this seems obvious to have X, Y, and Z feature, and DraftKings had it. And yep. that kind of brings me to, like, how big of a disadvantage was it for Nigel and FanDuel just to literally not have that? Because, I mean, some of the anxiety you know, the, the points in the book you wrote about him having anxiety about literally naming a starting quarterback in the NFL, like could hardly name a single one without having somebody feed him the answer ahead of time. I mean, that's, that's a, that's an odd world to live in when you're running one of the largest and up and coming sports companies out there. And I felt like that was something that really wore on him and and was a, huge disadvantage for FanDuel. Well, I, I think it was an, a, a disadvantage. There's no question about it. I, but I do think that there is something to this idea that in the early years, you know, not having sort of, you know, you just had a lot of sites and you had a lot of, you know, ventures that were run in the early, and we're talking kind of like, almost like pre-DraftKings and, 
you know, around the time where like, look, that was an, an advantage because like, you know, I mean, you and I could have started sort of like vanity projects early on and like, you know, fantasy fans and like, what, well, why can't that succeed? And why, why were there a hundred startups that just like crashed and burned? Well, you know, it's a little bit beyond that when you start a business and you grow something because like, I mean, there's a lot more to that. And there was an absolute brilliance to, for them in terms of just like an understanding of analytics and just like how yep. to build a business and acquire customers. But I think you made a great point because like at a certain point, well, well, I think the nuances of the product and these little things, I mean, just like tiny things that, yeah. you know, like you just need an understanding of just like fantasy and like how things work and like what people are going to respond to on an extreme micro level that, you know, maybe to people who don't have the decades of experience or even are in a fantasy league that just don't get. And we're just like, well, that is the entire difference from me and you winning a fantasy league, you know, where, where like, you know, you know, Jason, you know, gets it just, just right, right away. So, you know, I think like at a certain level, you know, what, what I think what the current leadership talks about at FanDuel is like pivoting from sort of like a, a, a marketing driven business to a product driven business. And, you know, at some point when you do become that company where, okay, brand awareness, got it. You know, people understand what daily fantasy is. People understand that this is a, this is a good product, but, you know, I think the nuances and the little things I mean, they make all the difference in the world. And, you know, I think you do need sort of a understanding of all of that. And, and an understanding is it's years and years and decades of just playing this thing that just the little things make all the difference in the world. Right. Yeah. No, I think you nailed it. I mean, they were, they were the juggernaut early because they understood the marketing aspect of it. But I think they got so consumed on that aspect of it that the product got overlooked. And then when somebody else had as deep a pockets with them and was able to build a scalable product from the ground floor up, I mean, that's a, that's, you know, the main advantage they had was the deep pockets. When that suddenly you had somebody who could compete with you on that front, and then had a better product, watch out. And that's exactly kind of what happened. Now, the uh, a couple of things, and we'll, you know, we don't want to spoil everything. It's an amazing book. Again, Billion Dollar Fantasy, Albert Chen, uh, the high stakes game between FanDuel and DraftKings. You, you, you don't even have to have a passion for DFS, but if you're listening to me, you do. You definitely need to read it. But, you know, give it to your wife, give it to your sister, give it to your mom, give it to your dad. They'll enjoy it. Um, but the one thing that I, you know, it's like you said, it's not about the players that the, your book, but there was one moment that as somebody who was a player and somebody who was an advocate for the industry, I was incredibly proud of was the, when you shed light into what happened in New York, um, down literally to the final seconds before that vote took place or didn't take place that basically saved the industry. Cause if New York went down, FanDuel and DraftKings and, and maybe DFS in general might not be here today, to be fully honest with you. And what I was proud of is, you know, I'm somebody who's harped on 
politicians and especially in the betting world today, there's lobbyists everywhere. And let's not kid ourselves. DFS has their fair share of lobbyists that help get laws passed all across this country. But from what you, the story you tell in that book, it wasn't lobbyists. It wasn't Jason Robbins. It wasn't Nigel. It, it, it was the fans. It was the players that got that across the finish line. I thought that was amazing. Yeah, I mean, there's no question about it. And I think that the, you know, I, look, you could have talked about so many different points in terms of like the climax of this narrative and how we got to this point. But there is absolutely no question. And, and I, you know, to this day, I, I even think that like the company, I mean, you know, Nigel and the founders and maybe the DraftKings guys will kind of like say like, okay, well, if New York doesn't happen, like, yeah, I mean, maybe we're fine. Maybe we're not. No, I mean, I, I don't think so. I I mean, if New York doesn't happen, I I mean, these two companies are dead. I mean, maybe it's not the next day, maybe it's six months, maybe it's a year after that, but like, no, it's, it's, it's game over. And you know, I think like it's it's this larger theme of just like, you know, when you're starting to start up, there are so many points where you could go boom or bust. And New York was absolutely the biggest point in that. And just talking to lawmakers and, you know, for this book, you know, you just talk to a lot of people and you know, whether it's Jeremy Kudon, who was at the front lines with the lobbying, you know, and Christian Janeski, who is, you know, at the front lines to legal, chief legal officer at FanDuel. No, I mean, look, they knew that going in, they went to sleep the night before that vote goes through in, in Albany. And, you know, Christian's wife is essentially saying, yeah. It was a good run, Christian. You know, you know was, it, this DFS thing was was pretty good. And like, you know, Jeremy, you know, like is in his hotel room and he's like, yeah, I mean, what's what's my life like after, you know, I, I moved on from this family, fantasy sports thing, which was a lot of fun, you know, but yeah. it was a short-lived experience. And, you know, because they wake up the next morning and like they fully expect that the vote doesn't go their way. But talking to lawmakers, it was all about hearing from players, fans. I mean, 250,000 emails. I mean, it's just incredible. incredible. I mean, it never goes that way, though, Albert. That's the crazy thing. It never goes that way. And I think that, like, I think that, honestly, if there's another book that's written five, ten years from now, you know, I want it to be a book about the passion of the players, the passion of the community, frankly, that, I mean, just all you have to do is go to a live event and, you know, talk to players. And, you know, I don't think I captured this necessarily, but like there is a passion that is far beyond pretty much anything that is yeah. like, I mean, and, and that's, that's like a part of the story where yeah. that, that really resonates and that came through. And like, honestly, that is kind of where, I mean, that, that's the climax of the story. And like, you know, I kind of grappled with it. I'm like, look, it's Albany, it's a state bill, whatever, like it is what it is. But like, I just 
I just went back to that moment because like, that's where everything changed. And it was all about the players and it was all about this community that honestly, I, I just completely blown away with the players and how just like in this critical moment, they, they were the, they were the ones that came through. Yeah. Uh, I mean, strictly looking at it saying, do you really want to be the one that's going to keep all those people who called you from being able to play fantasy sports here? And they looked at it and said, you know what? You're right. I don't want to answer to those people. These people vote. And that's the way politics should work. That's how deciding laws should work. You know, do what your constituents want. And, uh, and it made all that hustling that, that we did you know, well worth it. So that was something that I didn't realize that you really shed a lot of light on for me. I mean, I've heard it before, but when it was spelled out in that book, it literally came down to the last second. It was pretty awesome. Okay. Um, where do we go from here? Okay. The book's written. Um, are you doing any follow-ups or anything? Cause like I said, like it, it, just the whole like idea of like these co-founders at FanDuel creating this, you know, billion dollar company at one point in time. And then everything taking a turn for the worse and then potentially getting like nothing like what's the latest on this I know there's like a lawsuit and whatnot but you know from my understanding is you know the board took it all over and a lot of these you know early you know co-founders and early employees their shares are are were were not worth anything what what exactly is that dynamic because obviously you know Jason and the DraftKings guys they still have tons of upside they're still you know running that company maybe it'll ipo one day who knows but fanduel those co-founders are out so what's the latest on that front because i think that's kind of a fascinating business story outside of you know the the fantasy angle yeah i mean there there's no question that if unless you're jason matt or paul i mean that's that's it's a happy ending towards and there's you know they're far from the ending like they're they're going to continue to build the business but i mean it's not a good ending for the fanduel founders i mean they created this thing that you know triggered this industry and you know you know created this the this thing that really started it all but it's a ter- it's a terrible ending i mean you know like how many you know founders of a business that you you build a billion dollar business and essentially you know at the end of the day like walk away with nothing and that's the reality of of, of the the founders of FanDuel and so it is a story that that continues i mean you know from my standpoint whatever the book it's it's about the ending is 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 you know may 2018 this game changing moment the yeah. ending is all about the founders moving on to the next thing but I mean, this is a story that's absolutely still going to continue. And I think that there are going to be some, some, some big developments and, you know, the lawsuit is, has, has legs. I mean, you know, talking to kind of both sides of it, like, you know, like obviously there are, uh, you know, non-disclosure and, you know, they, they just can't comment on it, but, you know, people around both sides, like, they both feel like they have a case and it's very complicated. And, but I do think this is going to drag on for months, for years, absolutely years where we won't have like a kind of like a satisfying conclusion. If you want to talk about what is the conclusion of 
the story of the founders at, at FanDuel. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating because on the one point, you know, on the one hand, you're like, wow, these guys who started FanDuel, you know, like years and years before the DraftKings guys walked away with absolutely nothing. That is like absurd and shocking and just ridiculous. On the other hand, you're like, you talk to, uh, you know, VCs, people in the startup world, and you're like, uh, you know, they're essentially saying, look, this is what happens. I mean, this is what happens with, if you have, you bring in, you raise a ton of money and you bring in late stage investors who crush the founders, the guys who started the companies. I mean, this happens every single day. So, you know, on the one hand, it is insane and totally crazy. On the other, it's, it happens all the time. Probably just not with companies as, as widely popular and public as one is FanDuel. Especially, Absolutely. Especially yeah. one that's, that, you know, and the, the last point is, you know, post-PASPA right now looks to be one of the, if not the leader in the sports betting space. So, yeah, and, and, and you talk about sort of like, okay, so like, you know, this roller coaster that is just like constantly turning and like, you know, we're heading into 2019 football season and you can make the argument certainly that FanDuel is kind of in the driver's seat right now. I mean, I don't know, a sure. month from now, that could be completely different. I would almost like, you know, who knows what's going to happen, but like, this is ever changing. And so, you know, I think that this story, you know, the book is what it is, but I think like this story is constantly changing, like in a great way in terms of like, if you're just a bystander who's like, yeah, I've been following this story for years and where is the thing, this thing going to go? And who knows? I, it's, it's great. It's a, it's a, it's an amazing story. Well, uh, someone said that you uh, sold the rights to the movie, okay? Uh, I don't know if I'm going to make the movie, but please make me, uh, I don't know, like 50 pounds lighter with better hair. That's all I'm asking. Oh, come on. You got to give yourself more credit. 50 pounds <laughs> lighter. Come on. But nobody wants a bald guy. Come on. But no, it's, uh, it's a fabulous read. Check it out. It's on Amazon. Again, coming out September the 10th. They've got it for Kindle, audiobook, and of course, the hardcover. Billion dollar fantasy. High stakes game between FanDuel and DraftKings uh, that upended sports in America. He is Albert Chen of Sports Illustrated. Albert, great conversation. Love the book. Thanks so much for writing it. It's going to be something I can always go back and when I'm an old man, I can go back and say, uh, oh, let me go back to those, those younger years and relive them through this book. So uh, as somebody who lived through this, this time, you did a great job on it and, and appreciate you joining us here today. Thanks so much, Dan. Real quick. And you know what? We're already old. So <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's but uh, true. No, thanks so much. <laughs> thanks a lot.